Alex has served as an elder at Littleton Bible Church near Denver, Colorado, for a number of decades. He has experience in this area. He's taught in more than 25 countries. He's helped thousands of churches, uh, ours included, through his uh, expository writing ministry. His books are uh, wonderful. There's 200,000 of them in print and counting. What he's most known for, though, and I encourage all of you to get a copy of this, is Biblical Eldership. And this has been translated into 20 languages, and it is really the handbook on how to do leadership in the church today. Alex and his wife, Marilyn, uh, live in Littleton, Colorado. They have four adult daughters nearby and eight grandchildren. And we're 11 grandchildren? (laughs) You need to update your website then. That's uh, 11. I can't help it. They keep having babies. That's right. Strap in, put your seatbelts on. Would you give a warm welcome to Alexander Strzok? Yes, if my daughters hear that, they'll say, Dad, you've got to bring them up to date. Well, good morning, saints of the Lord. You know, when I walked through that front door, I could feel the energy and anticipation. I could feel it. And you know, that's really the topic of our day today, the spirit of of the church. What is the spirit of your church? And our Lord Jesus Christ tells us what the spirit of the church is to be in Revelation chapter 2. And we're going to look at that. You may want to open your Bibles right now to Revelation 2, verse 1 to 7. And while you're doing that, I, I always like to bring resources with me. We need good books. Don't waste your time sitting in front of the TV for hours. Oh, my, what waste of life that is. There are good books to read that will transform you and sanctify you. A new book that has just come out and I'm very delighted with is by Joseph Hellerman, Embracing Shared Ministry, Power and Status in the Early Church and Why It Matters Today. This is a very unusual book. This man examines how in the city of Philippi, a Roman colony, they viewed status, authority, leadership, and power. And then he compares it to Philippians chapter 2, how the great apostle views status, power, and leadership. And then he applies that to the church leadership body. It is an excellent book, and this man gets it. I read so many books, and you read it, and they start out good, and before long, they're into some tradition or some thought they have that has nothing whatsoever to do with the word of the Lord. I highly recommend it. It's a little hard to read at the beginning, but the second half is how they operate in their church with real brotherly leadership. Uh, Very well done, Joseph Hellerman. And we've got about 10 copies And when they go, we have fill-out forms. You just fill out the form. We will mail that to you. And then we bill you. If you do not pay, Steve comes to your house and shakes you upside down till we get that money. Okay. And then Charity and Its Fruits by Jonathan Edwards. Now, I've read this book in the original English that he wrote three times. That's how important this book is. But someone came along with the brilliant idea of taking that old volume and putting it into more modern, easy-to-read language. And that needed to be done. In fact, I even thought we ought to do that someday through our company. But this man did it, so save us a lot of work. He takes the 15 descriptions of love from 1 Corinthians 13. And... You may not know this, but Jonathan Edwards was one of the first known American geniuses. He was a true genius. 
And um, you put that mind into observation of the word of the Lord, and you have some of the deepest thoughts written in human history. Charity and its fruits. It's a little hard reading, but if you will go slow and not rush, remember we have two more months of summer, so you have time to read your summer book. What is your summer book, by the way? All right. Charity and its fruits by Jonathan Edwards. And how many have read the life of Robert Chapman? Raise your right paw. The rest of you, you ought to just send you home right now. Uh, I've spent over 30 years promoting the life of Robert Chapman. Spurgeon said he was the saintliest man I ever met. He uh, took over, he was a, a high court lawyer and he gave up his legal profession. And he took over a little fighting Baptist church that had gone through three pastors in 18 months. He was sure to be the fourth one. And how he turned that little fighting church around and became well known throughout the whole world as the apostle of love. Everything I'm going to talk to you about today is modeled by Robert Chapman. Now, if you have no money, you are on Social Security, you are in government benefits, you have no money at all, I will give you this. Just read it. Do not worry about it. Just write your name and address on the card out there, and we will send it to you and say, I have no money. Now, I would like you now to take your Bibles and open to Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, and stand with me as we read the word of the Lord. Everybody's got their opinion about the church and how we should run the church and what the church should be like, but it really is worthless. What we want to hear is what Christ says about his church. Revelation 1, 1, 2, verses 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Our Lord, our Father, we come to you in that wonderful, exalted name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who holds angels in his right hand, who walks among our churches, who judges with righteousness and perfect truth, who perceives our corporate spirit and our individual spirit, the one who is the word of God, the one who is the truth, our great mediator, our great high priest. We ask that your spirit will work in our midst today to enlighten our minds and our hearts, to convict us and to motivate and move us 
to be the people you want us to be, to sanctify us today, to educate us today, unite us. May we be the church of Jesus Christ that glorifies you. Now we ask these things in the authority of the name of the one whose name is above all other names, King of kings, Lord of lords, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I believe you have notes in hand or will be given notes, either one. Yes, you're going to be given notes. So I want to just say this to you. You all work too hard. You do not need to take any notes. You will have notes in front of you, but this entire message for the entire day is in a booklet, and it will be given to you free. How many churches give you free books? Very few. They always want to charge you. I want to charge you, but this church wants to give you free books. So take the book. Everything I say, all the scripture passages are in the book. So I want you, it's Saturday, relax. Okay? If I see you taking notes, I'm going to come out there and take your pen away from you. I'm not joking. Just relax and listen to the word of the Lord. Because when you take notes, you you miss important things. So everything from this day is written down for you in simple English. All right, let's begin with a church in crisis. Revelation 2, chapter 2, 1 to 7. Now, you know, I've never been to a church that gives you a whole hour and a half. This is amazing. Most of the time, they all, you know, they're neurotic. You've got 40 minutes. If you don't stop in 40 minutes, the trapdoor, uh, you disappear. <laughs> or someone in the back starts waving their watch, you know. Someone did that to George Verwer from Operation Mobilization, waving the watch. And he says, thank you, brother, for that donation. <laughs> A church in crisis. And we begin with Christ's self-description. Before we go any farther, we need to know John's grand and glorious and majestic view of our risen, glorified Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 1, you have this vision of the exalted Christ. And John makes it very clear there's no one else in the entire universe like him. Myriads of angels, people. Made by God, but no one is like the Lord Jesus Christ. He has no equals. He is incomprehensibly great. And so the first thing we learn about our Lord Jesus Christ is that in his right hand, he holds the seven stars, which are the angels of the churches. Now, if you have read the book of Revelation, you know how powerful angels are. One angel in the book of Revelation, he has one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. And he has a chain. He's going to chain Satan. And we know that angels have glory to them. And they shine and they produce light. Powerful, majestic creatures. Well, in Christ's right hand are seven angels. And they are safe in his hand. And this shows us his awesome power and might, authority, and his supremacy over all subordinate authorities. He's the all-powerful, sovereign Lord. All things are in the control of his right hand. Do you get that picture of the majestic, exalted, heavenly 
Christ. And then the second thing he says about him, he walks among the golden lampstands, churches with uh, light. They're light-bearing uh, congregations in a very dark world, and Ephesus was a very dark dark city spiritually. Well, there was a lampstand there, a light to the glory of God and the message of the truth. But I want you to notice they're golden. That expresses the value, the worth. But you say, my our church is only 25 people. But they're blood-bought people. They're of infinite value to our Lord. Never despise the, the gathering of the Lord's people, whether it's five or 5,000, it doesn't matter. Someone said when the Lord looks down from heaven, every church is the same size. They're all golden lampstands of infinite value to the one who gave the highest possible price to redeem them his own life and bearing the sin and the curse and the judgment all to himself so he could have a people forever. Never despise the church of God. No matter how broken down it is and problem-ridden, it is God's church. It's a golden lampstand. Now, notice he walks among them. He has complete authority over these churches. They're his. They're not yours. They never will be yours. The church that is yours is a false church, a pseudo-church. It's always his church. We're just his under-shepherds caring for it. And being willing like he was willing to give our life for it, to lay down our life. He walks among the golden lampstands and he has perfect judgment. You you cannot fool the Lord Jesus Christ. You fool yourself all the time, but you cannot fool him. He has penetrating eyes and he looks into each church and his judgment and his evaluation is absolutely perfect. And so we must listen to it. So John begins with Christ's own self-description as he speaks to these churches. The story is told of a a young lady who had a a gold chain and uh, she wanted to get a gold cross for her chain. And so she went to the jewelry store and at the jewelry store she told the proprietor there what she wanted and he took her over to a case and he was showing her the different uh, crosses and he bent down behind the case and he was showing her and he said now madam do you want a plain cross or one with the little man on it to many people he's the little man on the cross but that's not John's description he is the majestic incomprehensible Lord Jesus Christ from heaven. In fact, in the chapters ahead, all of heaven will look at the one who is at the center, who alone can open the seals of judgment. So that's how we begin with the place of authority of Christ in his church. Now, let me remind you, he walks among our churches today and he evaluates our church today. And that's our job To not read more church growth books or books on strategy, but get his evaluation. The only evaluation that matters any at all. Now, Christ's commendation of the church. It wasn't easy being Christ's lampstand in a dark city like Ephesus. R.H. Charles says that Ephesus was a hotbed of every kind of cult and superstition. There was the pagan uh, temple of Artemis, Roman Diana, and it dominated the city. It was one of the considered one of the seven wonders of the world. So it was a very religious city. 
It had emperor worship. The imperial cult thrived in Ephesus, and it required every citizen to uh, offer incense to the emperor. And this caused the Christians a lot of problems and many martyrdoms as a result of emperor worship. And then it was a prosperous trade center in a very immoral port city. It was not easy being a light stand in the city of Ephesus. And so our Lord, in his wonderful, gracious way, commends this church. He says, I know. I know your toil. I know your works. Notice he didn't say, I think, possibly, maybe. No, he says, I know. He knows everything we've ever done in life. I can't remember what I did last week. I can't remember the restaurant I ate at yesterday. I certainly can't remember 40 years ago what I did. But the Lord knows. And this is very encouraging. He knows everything we have done in life. And let me say at the judgment seat of Christ, it will all be brought up. And there will be a reward day. There will be a day of praise and acknowledgement. All that you've done for Christ, you can't even remember. He says, I know. I know what you have done. And he will encourage you with that. We even see that later when he speaks to the different churches. There will be a special name given to each one of us on that day. I don't know what the name is, but the name will describe us and what we have done for him. Reward day is coming, and God is no man's debtor. You have done nothing for the Lord that will not be in that day, as the Bible says. That day, he will reward you. Now, he says, I know your, your toil, and I know your works. And they had been working hard for the Lord. And it's important to get this. Because sometimes we just trust in our outward performance and all the good things we do. And many churches are very busy. Sometimes we're too busy. We wear people out and even hurt families. Well, they toiled and they patiently endured. And then he says this, I know that you do not tolerate those who profess the faith but live an immoral lifestyle. You don't tolerate that. And you cannot bear with those who are evil. There were Christians who somehow had adopted some kind of syncretistic Christianity that allowed them to live in sin. And then Jesus said, you've tested those who call themselves apostles. Even at this late date, uh, in the, the latter half, the last half of the uh, first century, there were people walking, going around declaring themselves uh, agents of God, apostles, like the great 12 apostles, like Paul. And they tested them. They didn't just hook, line, and sinker, swallow every message. You know, I know one church, and the uh, uh, pastor says from the platform, you are not to watch certain preachers on the TV because they know their church, their particular church, is inclined to hook, line, and sinker, believe all of this teaching on they'll, you'll get really healthy and you'll get very, very wealthy. Of course, you need to give me the money first. After you give me the money, you will get the money. But you got to give first, see? And they know their people are, are easily fooled by this. Well, these people were not fooled by people declaring they are apostles. They got the message directly from the Lord. He says, you tested them, you tried them, you evaluated them, you found they're false. And our Lord commends them. They were self-deceived agents of Satan, not representatives of Christ. And so we learned from this passage, they were doctrinally discerning church. They loved truth. They loved the gospel. They were theologically vigilant. They were defenders of the truth. These are all good things. I hope they're true of you. And then he says the last thing is they face great conflict. You are enduring patiently and bearing up, probably because either of 
persecution or when false teachers come to a church, they cause terrible havoc and chaos. And uh, as a result of the chaos caused by false teachers, as a result of persecution in the city, he says this, you've been bearing up for my name's sake and you've not grown weary. These things sort of wear you right down into nothing. They were loyal and they were dedicated to our Lord. Now, there's much to commend the church in Ephesus, and we should prize all these qualities. We should seek these qualities in our own local churches. They could have written a best-selling book, Church Success and How We Did It. Everyone would buy it. Every church in the, the empire would say, oh, we've got to read this book. Did you see how Ephesus became so large? How did they do it? Read this book, The Ten Principles of Church Growth. Now, despite all these successes and good things, the Lord has a complaint. All was not well. In fact, there was something fundamentally wrong with this church. Now, it might seem almost trivial what our Lord is going to say. You have all these good things about you. But I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you once had. Why is this so serious? Why is our Lord threatening the extinction of the church to put their light out in the city? He even says, you've fallen. You've abandoned. And I have this against you. Now, when I was actually writing the book, Leading with Love, I had a chapter on this, just a small chapter on this section. And when I was... Writing on this section, I realized, my, this is much more important than I realized. We need a whole book on this. And that's where love or die came. You either love or you die because the Lord will put the light out. Our Lord is really serious about this. And the condemnation is quite serious. So let's look at his complaint. This chapter is for churches like ours. Churches that are Bible-believing. Christ-centered, work hard, we love evangelism, we want edification of the saints. Some of us are killing ourselves. The Lord doesn't want to kill us, but we kill ourselves. I realize this, this chapter is for us. We're Ephesian churches. We're not Thyatira. We're Ephesus. And so the message of Ephesus is really a message for our kind of churches. So... The Spirit says, he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's look at Christ's complaint. Verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, literally, the text reads, you have abandoned your love, the first. The emphasis is on the adjective first. So the love they abandoned refers to the love that was first expressed in the early days, the beginning days of this church, maybe the days when Paul was there. He was there for almost three years, so he knew this church. John was there. Uh, Timothy was there. Priscilla and Aquila was there. I mean, they had the greatest of the greatest there. So Paul actually felt this church. He knew this church, Uh, and, and John knew this church. He knew the people, the faces, the names. Notice our Lord doesn't say you have no love. Well, they wouldn't be Christians then. He says you've abandoned the love you had 
at first. There's still a measure of love because they're true Christians. You see, they still love the Lord Jesus Christ, but not like they used to love the Lord Jesus Christ. They still love one another. They're toiling, working, but it's not like they used to love one another. Uh, They still love the lost, but not like they used to love the lost. In other words, once they had a great deal of joy and creativity and freshness and spontaneity and energy of life and work, but now the energy source is depleted. Their work had become mundane and mechanical and routine. They were a picture of self-satisfaction. Instead of love abounding and growing and overflowing, it was actually shrinking, growing coal. Instead of being motivated by love from the heart, their works were more perfunctory. Even certain works that sprang from that former love vanished. And Jesus says, you better do those works again. I want you to notice there is no object given in the text to you've abandoned your love. It doesn't say love for Christ. Some, some writers will say, well, he's talking about love for Christ. Some say he's talking about love for one another. No, there is no object. It is love in all those spheres. One for another, uh, for God, and for the lost. It's a, a general statement. Love, in all its aspects, is waning. Now, these are very strong words our Lord uses. Notice what he says, you've abandoned. Some of your Bibles may say, have given up the love they once had. Now, when he says you have abandoned, you have given up, what he's saying is your fault. Don't look around like so many Christians say, well, we just didn't have good teaching. What would we know? We don't have the whole of Scripture. Well, that's just not true. They have the Apostle Paul for three years. They had Timothy there. They had Priscilla and Aquila. John, the apostle, we know was there in his latter years. Uh, We know by this time they have much of the Bible, much of the New Testament. They had seen great things. They had shaken this city of Ephesus to the core. They even had to kick Paul out. It caused a riot. In fact, it says in the book of Acts that all of Asia had heard the word of the Lord. This was full-blown revival. They had no excuse. They couldn't blame someone else, blame the preacher, blame those elders, blame those sad banana people in our church. If I only had a better church to go to, if I only had a better marriage, better job. No, the loss of love is they had abandoned, they had lost, they had given up, and they had every privilege. So he puts the blame right on them. And this is a 40-year-old church by this time. Now, let's look at the problem more closely. The problem of lost love. Why is it such a big deal? We've got so many other problems in life. Why is this one accentuated? Well, let's just back up for a second and look in the New Testament. And we realize this, that every local church in the New Testament had its own personality. It had its identity. It had its distinctive. It had its gifts. It had its atmosphere, or we would call a corporate spirit. Every one of the seven churches in Revelation had a corporate spirit. Not just an individual spirit, but a corporate spirit. The the atmosphere, the culture of the church, the way things are thought of and the way things are done. And the same is true today. And it's amazing. You can go into a church you've never been to before, and within about 10, 15 minutes, you you can feel it. 
It's an angry group, a fighting group, a coal group. I remember one time I was in Kansas, and uh, I got done speaking, a church about this size, and when I got done speaking, I wanted to go to the back door and greet all the saints, and I got caught right over here where Bob is, right over here. And some lady talked to me. She couldn't have talked to me for three or four minutes, no more than five minutes, definitely. We talked for a few minutes. I got to the back door. Every single person was God. I looked around. They must have been a hungry group of people. There must have been a big football game on that day. They were all gone. In less than five minutes, I was standing there with the pastor. I hope he wasn't going to leave soon. <laughs> I could tell you something about that church. They weren't really concerned with being with one another. They had lost their love for one another. Now, there's other churches you go to, and after about an hour, someone goes running around, please, please, we beg you to leave. We want to close up and go home. Please, talk outside. Those people love to be with one another. Now, one quality that should beautify every church, and some churches don't have a lot of giftedness. Some churches don't have a lot of money or a beautiful building. They lack many, many things. But there is one quality that should be true of every single church, and it's the quality of Christ-like love. It's what our Lord is talking about here. Regardless of your giftedness or personality or whatever else, It should have an atmosphere characterized by love because it's the greatest of all the Christian virtues. Now, Ephesus was not a new church. It was a well-established church, sound in doctrine and faith. And you can be sure the believers attended church regularly, good church-growing people. Uh, They knew their doctrine, celebrated the Lord's Supper, prayed, rejected false teachers, did good deeds, carried out their responsibilities, lived good, moral, upright lives, prayed, sang songs, and boy, we had some very good singing this morning. But they lacked love. D.A. Carson, in an article he wrote many years ago, called A Church That Does All the Right Things But. The Church That Does All the Right Things But. Here's what he writes. They, the Ephesians, still proclaimed the truth, but no longer passionately loved him who is the truth. They still performed good deeds, but no longer out of love, brotherhood, and compassion. They preserved the truth and witnessed courageously, but forgot that love is the greatest witness to the truth. It is not so much that their genuine virtues have squeezed love out, but that no amount of good works, wisdom, discernment in matters of church discipline, Patient endurance and hardship, hatred of sin or discipline can ever make up for lovelessness. Let me give you an illustration. Often illustrations communicate better than long quotations. Uh, There was a man, and he had come to our church many, many years ago, and um, he uh, was a uh, teacher in a Bible school, and he was a very energetic preacher and a lover of the Word of God and a great student of the Word of God. And when he came to our church, you could see he was passionate about teaching the Bible, loved the Lord's uh, people. Before the, the meeting started, he met with a group of men to pray and prayed passionately that God would work and draw the lost. And after he was done preaching, he uh, went to the back door and just, you could see, he was just delighted to meet everyone, talk to everyone. He was the last person to leave. Then when he left, he went to someone's home. They had a wonderful afternoon of lunch together, sang together, and spent the evening at the person's home, and the next day left. 
Fifteen years went by. Same preacher came again. Good preacher. You could see that he was uh, well-studied, enjoyed teaching the Bible, was very, very busy, traveling, speaking, helping churches. But something had changed. During the prayer time, he didn't actually pray. And although his message was a good message, it was a very scripted message. At the end, he went to the back door to greet people, and within about 10 minutes, he, he left and said that he really needed to stay at a hotel. Nothing wrong with staying in a hotel, but he said he, he felt that would be more restful for him than uh, going to someone's home. And he wanted to make sure that they sent their check to this particular address. Now, most people did not see a change. He seemed to be a very good speaker. But those of us who had known him, we saw something had changed. How would our Lord evaluate that? He had all the right things. There's nothing I could criticize about his basic presentation, performed as a preacher should perform. But I would say, our Lord would say, but he abandoned the love he had at first. That passion, that fire that was there 15 years before, loving to be with the Lord's people, loving to sing and pray, That was gone. All the outward performance was there. Absolutely, the mechanics were there. It was a very good sermon. Something was missing. This is why this is such an important subject, because you can have all the outward externals, but something is missing. So why is love so important? Why is a loss of love so seriously taken by our Lord? Why does it stress our Lord so deeply? Why does he threaten such a severe judgment? Why is it a life and death issue for the local church? Well, our Lord gives the answer himself in the Gospels. So let's look at what our Lord himself says about why loss of love, although all the externals are there and we're looking good, We could be a church of 20,000, great choir, great missions program, great teaching program. And the Lord says, but I'm going to put the light out. So let's look at our Lord's own words. First of all, Jesus Christ taught that the greatest and first commandment is to love God completely, totally, and unreservedly. Now, I see some of you taking notes. I'm going to come out there and take your pen. It's all written down for you. You need to relax now. Don't be so uptight. I know when you come to church, you know, you're high-performance people. Just listen. You'll get much more if you listen. Then later, if you really like what's said, you can go read the book. And then you can take all the notes you want. I don't care. You're on your own time. Jesus taught that the great and first commandment is to love God completely, totally, unreservedly, with all one's heart, with all one's soul, with all one's strength. In fact, the sum of all God's commandments and all religious service is summed up by this first priority of every Christian, love God with your whole being. Nothing in life is more right, more fulfilling, more rewarding in the orders of love than to love God first and foremost above all other things. Now, our Lord, second, second, don't take the notes down because you're going to get them later. Second, Jesus declares that the second commandment is like the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, notice what our Lord does. It's incredibly brilliant. 
He makes love for God and love for neighbor inseparable companions. He summarizes, now listen very carefully. If you're just dozing off, wake up just a moment. He summarizes the heart, now are you listening, of genuine religion, true inner spirituality, and all moral conduct by the double command, love God, love your neighbor. Jesus said this, on these two commandments depends all the law and prophets. Jesus said, there is no other commandment greater than these. Now, all of us, as we grow in our Christian life, we come to points in life where we really do get confused about spirituality. I was talking to a a Christian missionary lady. We had dinner with her, and she was telling me in her younger days, many years ago when she went to the mission field in Africa, that she wouldn't associate with the other Christian missionary ladies who use nail polish. Why would people paint their nails? Or if they did their hair in a certain way? Or if they wore certain clothes? And of course, men say, well, if you're really spiritual, you won't watch football on Sunday. (gasps) Those of us who don't watch football on Sunday are truly spiritual. But if you wash your car on Sunday, that's okay. Do not watch football. It does get confusing, doesn't it? The adjustable halo. What, what is true inner spirituality? Well, throughout history, we've come up with all kinds of external performances and acts. That one's spiritual, that's not spiritual. Christ is telling us what spirituality is. It is to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. doesn't matter whether you wear lipstick or don't wear lipstick or wear jeans. I remember another lady told me in her country, the great sin to show that you are not Really walking with the Lord is to wear jeans. All these things confuse us. And as we grow up, we try to work through this. But Christ is telling us the answer. What a genuine spiritual person, a truly religious heart and mind, is one who loves God with all soul and mind. As Luther said many years ago, love God and do as you please. I didn't mean do sin. But the point is love God. And then love your neighbor as yourself which is a very sacrificial kind of love, putting them first before yourself. Well, that is true spirituality, if you want to know what it is. And some people are, are, are filled with these external little rules and regulation, do's and don'ts, and they're not spiritual people. They're very cruel. They're malicious people at times. Don't even like to be around them. They're so full of themselves. There's no other commandment greater than these. Christ's followers are to be marked not only by total devotion to God, but also sacrificial service to one's neighbor. And who is one neighbor? Jesus said the neighbor is love your enemy, love your persecutor, love the unlovely. Those are all the people you're to love. And then third, these are all our Lord's own words. He's telling us why love is so important. Get it right from his mouth. Third, third, Jesus said true discipleship requires self-denial and loving him above all other human beings. Listen to what our Lord said. Whoever loves father or mother more than me, he's not even worthy of me. Whoever loves sons or daughters, and may I add grandchildren, more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me, he is not worthy of me. Our Lord is saying all other human relationships... Even the closest family loving ties become idolatrous 
When Christ is not loved first and foremost. Now, this passage is often called a passage of discipleship, but let me remind you it's also a passage of Christ's divine nature. There are many statements like this that show Christ's divine nature. It's not just one statement. Uh, For example, uh, in Luke 24, when our Lord said, uh, all the prophets, all the law, uh, all of the Old Testament refers to me. It all speaks of me. And we just go right by that. But that's a statement of his divinity. Can you imagine for a moment if I came here, you invited me here, and I said to you, dear friends, you don't know this, but Moses wrote about me. The prophets, they all wrote about me. Did you know that? The tabernacle and the sacrifices all pointed to Alex Strout. Well, of course you laugh. I heard someone laugh right there. Throw that person out. <laughs> it's, it would be humorous, wouldn't it? It'd be like, this guy's a clown. Or you're a very nice group of people. You would call my wife right now and say, Marilyn, your husband has just completely lost his mind. He thinks the whole Old Testament's about him. Get me some good medication. Send me home on the plane. We don't laugh when Christ said it. Everything in the Old Testament, it all points to me. Why? Because it's true. Now, right here is the same thing. He says, it doesn't matter what level or order of human relationships, the most intimate, the most intimate is idolatry compared with your love for me. I come first above your your children. I come first of of your marriage. I come first with your friendships. All related, I come first. If you don't love me first and foremost, the others are perverted actually and actually turn out to be very self-centered. That's a powerful statement. He's divine. Only God could say this. It would be blasphemy because that's what God says. He is to be loved first and foremost. Christ says, I'm going to be loved first and foremost. He can say that because he's God. So let us remember in the order of love relationships, and there are many kinds of love relationships, the most intimate being the husband and wife, and that's why it can be used in Ephesians 5 of Christ and the church. Is idolatrous if Christ is not first. You want to have a happy marriage? Put Christ first in it. You put yourself first, you're going to fight and kill each other. I guarantee you. So, man, I know he has counseled literally thousands of couples, thousands of couples in premarital counseling. And he said to me to this one day, he said, I have found over many years that the couples who put Christ first and are serving Christ first in their marriage always have a happier marriage than when they're all consumed with themselves and their own pleasures and their own ideas and their own uh, self-fulfillment. Big word today. This is why love is so important. And then fourth... Jesus left his followers a new commandment, a new commandment. In the closing hours of his life upon this earth, surrounded by his apostles, his specially chosen ones who would be the links between himself and the church he would build, he said this to them in the upper room. He said, gentlemen, I'm going to give you a new commandment. You are to love one another just the way you will see me love you and have loved you. And by this love, my kind of self-sacrificing, selfless love, people will know you belong to me. You're followers of me. Now, love is not a new commandment. Go back to Deuteronomy 6. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Uh, the book of Deuteronomy is a, is a chapter filled with statements about love. I, th- I think uh, Steve spoke about this uh, last night. 
God's love for Israel is tremendous, uh, unfailing covenantal love with Israel, despite all Israel did. Love is not a new concept. It's in the Old Testament. Book of Hosea, the book of Deuteronomy. And in many places where the word love isn't used, but uh, the events show his faithful love, his loyal love to his people. So love is not new, but Jesus has a new commandment. What is new is the new standard. And the standard is this. You're to love one another, not like love your neighbor as yourself, but love one another. Watch me as I loved you and I gave myself for you and I was prepared to die for you. That's the new standard. First John 3.16 says that we are to love one another and be prepared to die for one another. That's the new standard. Now, this new commandment, uh, love one another as I have loved you, literally flows through all the arteries and veins of the New Testament. It's the overarching one another command. Love one another, and under it come many other commands. Pray for one another, uh, care for one another, uh, encourage one another. They're all subsets of the overarching new commandment. In fact, go to Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll talk about it later. But in Ephesians chapter 5, we have the new commandment, but applied to the marriage relationship. And so in the marriage relationship, we learn this truth. It's a revolutionary truth. And that is that the husband is to love the wife as Christ loved the church. That's the new commandment. And gave himself for her. More about that uh, this afternoon. That's if you come back. All right. Uh, let me just say what John Eady says. No ancient um, philosopher, Aristotle, Plato, Kant, Russell, ever taught such far-reaching ideas of love. No political figure from Julius Caesar to Winston Churchill has ever made such demands upon his followers to love. No religious teacher, whether Buddha, Confucius, or Mohammed, ever commanded his followers to love one another and to give themselves to one another as he had given himself. No system of theology or philosophy says so much about the divine motivation of love and holiness to express love in the degree that Christ's death on the cross and the demands he makes. So John Eady concludes this, there is nothing so remote from Christ's example as a hard and uncharitable disposition. Now, do you see why Christ says, I will remove the lampstand? There's no other religion that teaches what Christ teaches about love. In fact, you may not realize this, but the word love appears over a thousand times in the Bible. Now, fifth, fifth, and now we go to Christ's apostles, which taught what he taught. John, the beloved uh, disciple of Christ, declared, God is love. 1 John 4, uh, 8 and 16. God is love. Now, you have to stop here for a second because we're so used to this. We've heard this so much. We've read it many, many times that we just sort of blow over it. But I want to remind you, in the ancient world, they would never say this. They would never say, Zeus is love. It would be incomprehensible. Brahma is love. Krishna is love. But he says the very essence of God is God is love. Now, this statement actually brings us to the triune nature of God. He is a society of persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God has been an eternal love relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. John 17, the Lord Jesus said that the Father has loved me before the creation of the universe. There has been this love relationship between Father and Son, Holy Spirit. All love, says one writer, is but a reflection or shadow of intertrinitarian love. 
Listen to what Bruce Ware says. And I know long quotes are, are hard to hear, but you can see it later. And it's so good, I think I ought to give it to you. Listen to what he says about God as triune and a social being. Listen carefully now. God is never alone. The one God is three, but he is by very nature both a unity of being while also existing eternally as a society of persons. He is socially related within being within himself. In this tri-personal relationship, the three persons love one another, support one another, assist one another, team with one another, honor one another, communicate with one another, and in every respect, enjoy one another. Such is the richness and the fullness and the completion of the social relationship that exists in the Trinity. And we have been called into relationship with this triune being. We too now can share in that love and express it in love to one another. This is a magnificent statement. So really, in a sense, through all our problems and all our pressures and and disagreements, those become the key opportunity to show God's love and to love one another as he has loved us. And we've been drawn into that wonderful communion of love. All right, six, Paul calls love the most excellent way of living. Paul makes it very clear in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31, uh, that love is the more excellent way of living. These Corinthians got all mixed up. They had taken spiritual gifts and they had used spiritual gifts to exalt and puff up themselves. Puffed up is a big word in in Corinth. And to divide the people of God. Now, gifts were given for the common good and for the building up of one another, but they reversed it and they used gifts to exalt themselves and to gain reputation for themselves. That's why it was a fighting church. It was a selfish church and a proud church. Well, when you have selfishness and pride, what else can you have but human conflict? It's a It's a given. Proven formula. It always works. They were very proud of their knowledge, very proud of their wisdom, very proud of speaking in tongues and their higher spiritual experiences. Some of them may have even been saying, we speak like angels. And Paul says, well, that's really neat. But I'm going to show you a more excellent way. A way that if you don't follow in this way, your gifts are actually dangerous. They're annoying. They're bankrupt. And so he says this to them. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse, chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, he says this, without love, even heavenly tongues sounds annoying. Without love, knowing it all theologically and philosophically, it really helps no one because love puffs up. Nothing worse than a person who's got a little bit of education in the Bible and they all of a sudden think they know it all. And they're prepared to fight. Best not to disagree with them. Just shake your head. 
Go away and pray for them. Yes, knowledge can be very, very self-exalting, and it's like a fire. It can, be, it can be more hurtful than good if it is not colored and motivated by love. Then Paul says, without love, powerful, risk-taking faith is worthless. He says, without love, giving everything to the poor is unprofitable. You wind up spiritually bankrupt. And then he says, without love, even the ultimate sacrifice of one's life is actually pointless. Did you hear that? Now, I think when the Corinthians heard this, it must have been a shocker. Here, they were going around spiritual super beings, thinking they had gone to a higher plane, thinking so much of themselves and to hear it was all pointless. It was spiritual bankruptcy because it was not colored by love. And that's why they had jealousy. And that's why during open meetings, some were talking over others and talking at the same time. And why we, when they went to the agape meal, some ran in and ate their steaks and filet mignon and they had their lobster and a wonderful uh, special French wine. And others come and they got popcorn and, and, and peanuts and water to drink. Some even started eating before others. They won't appreciate this good food. The rich people ate first and the poor people ate later. Paul says, I can't even believe this. Come to the house of God and despise the people of God. I mean, that's how bad it got. Some, can you believe this? They even got drunk at the agape meal. I guess that wine must have been awfully good. It's hardly believable. The real root problem is they lost love. They were, they were just like the Ephesians in, in Revelation 2. Maurice Roberts, a Scots pastor, wrote these words. In these familiar words, we possess one of the most central principles of the Christian faith. It is this. No religious act is of any value in God's sight if it does not accompany and flow from Christian love. Men seldom ponder its seriousness. If the implications of this one principle were consistently thought through, they would have a momentous effect Upon us. Then Paul sums it up and says this faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Paul is saying it's so, in, it's so easy to get all caught up with the externals tongue speaking, prophecy, healing, miracles, knowledge, uh, wisdom. So easy to get caught up with that and forget that the greatest and what will abide throughout eternity is love. In fact, Jonathan Edwards in this book, it is worth buying this book for the last chapter. The last chapter is called Heaven is a Home of Love. It's a paradise of love. Think of heaven as living with the triune Godhead who is love and the angels who have perfect love and all of us who are completely sanctified now in our new imperishable bodies having perfect love for one another. We, can't, we cannot actually experience that upon earth. Even in the most intimate of love relationships, there's always barriers. There's always questions. There's always wrong motives. But in heaven, it will be a perfect home of love with perfect love flowing from one to another. We, can't, we can hardly even conceive of it. Our love for God will be perfect. Our love for the angels will be perfect. God's love for us will be expressed in all its glory in a way that we can't even really grasp. We have to keep coming back to the elements of the Lord's Supper because we forget about the great love of the Lord that remind us what we forget of all the time. Okay, here's my question to you. Are you ready? 
When people come to your church and they walk through that door, what do they see? What do they feel? What is the spirit of your church as the Lord walks among a candlestick? What would he say? I don't care what others say, but what would he say? Now, we are interested in what others think because we still live on earth here. We're not in heaven. Uh, Do they sense and see a real care for one another, a sacrificial care for one another? Christian hospitality. There's a whole book out there on hospitality. Selfless generosity. Do they observe, and a very important virtue is a fruit of the Spirit, joy. Is it hurting you to go to church? Do you look like when you go to church, you've been weaned on a dill pickle and baptized in lemon juice? I go to churches and it looks like it's hurting them. It reminds me of the man who said he was a black belt Baptist. I said, what's a black belt Baptist? He says, Baptist and mad about it. Don't be mad about being a Christian. Is there joy? Is there spiritual vitality? Are people reaching out to others outside your church doors? Or do they see an impersonal gathering of people, uh, unfriendliness? I hear this all the time from people when they come to our church. Uh, They've gone to this church, this church, and that church, and there's just an unfriendliness. There's sort of a wall there. You can't penetrate it. Indifference, pride. Oh, some churches can be so full of pride. They're even proud about it. A critical spirit. They're against everybody. If the Lord was here, they'd be against him. They'd find fault with him. Guaranteed. Probably wouldn't wear the right clothes. Maybe he'd wear jeans. Who knows? Maybe he doesn't wear a tie on Sunday morning. I don't know. But I know they'd find some criticism of him. I guarantee you that's the way they are. They're angry. They're contentious. What is it they see? Now, as the leaders of your church, one of your jobs... And it's not an easy job. Is to discern the spirit of your church. You're probably the last ones to know. Everyone else knows. But you've blinded yourself. But as the leaders of a flock of God's people, you must know what is the spirit of this church. What is it we're projecting to people? What is reality here? You might have all the externals. You're great at performance. But the heart of the thing is gone. So what's the remedy? Well, oh, thank the Lord he gives us a remedy. He doesn't just abandon us here and with uh, this uh, complaint. But he gives us a remedy. He's a good physician. Don't ever go to a physician who says to you, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, my friends, but you're in serious shape. You have cancer. What do I do, doctor? Oh, I don't know. I just give. I just tell you what the problem is. I just diagnose. I don't, don't ask me. No, don't go to that kind of doctor. You want a doctor who has a good diagnosis, and then, of course, he has the, 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 the cure or, or help. Well, our Lord's a good doctor. He gives the diagnosis. You're dying of lack of love, but I'm going to give you the remedy. I'm very interested in the remedy. Now, I want to remind you what we've just learned, and never forget this. An individual or church can teach sound doctrine... Be faithful to the gospel, be morally upright, work hard, and yet be lacking in love and displeasing to Christ. Love can grow cold. Outward religious performance may still look good. 
and praiseworthy. But the Lord says, I have this against you. So we're dealing with actually one of the most difficult problems, the internal problem. And we have a tendency, all humans have a tendency to trust in the external religious rituals, the traditions, the denominational distinctions, the doctrinal correctness. I call this pride of rightness. Watch out for that one. We're the right church. Other churches are left churches. We're right church. On the right side of the street. By the way, our church is on the right side of the street. If you're heading south, it's on the left side if you go north. But don't, we don't deal that with that. We're the right church. That's true. We have sound doctrine. Don't go to those other churches. Go to our church. The pride of rightness. I often wondered if that was really the, the root problem of this church. Some indication of it. Moral, uh, moralistic rules. And yet, at the same time, overlook the foundational fundamentals of love for God and love for neighbors. In fact, Jesus said this was the Pharisees' problem. They tied mint and rue and every herb. I mean, these guys were scrupulous. They were really, really religious people. And they were proud of it. And neglect justice and the love of God, Luke eleven forty two. External religious performance can replace true inner spirituality and heart love. And that's the problem here at Ephesus. And it can be your problem and my problem. We're good at performance. We're good at keeping the rules. We're good church going nice people. But that's just the face inside the heart. Jesus said, you worship me with your lips. You sing praises. You have big, powerful prayers. But your heart is far from me. This is such an easy thing to fall into. So easy. And it's not easy to change when it happens. And that's why we need the remedy here. Really, our Lord is talking about true spirituality. It's not easy to restore a heart that has become deficient in love. Now, there is a a physical heart disease called cardiomyopathy. I've known several people who have had this disease. And in cardiomyopathy, the, the pumping power of the heart, for different reasons, begins to weaken and become deficient until finally the heart can't pump enough to move the blood and oxygen throughout your body. It's a weakened heart muscle, so the heart can no longer sufficiently pump blood. And if it's left untreated, you will die. You will be weaker and weaker and weaker, and you will die. There's a similar risk when the heart has become deficient in love. A cold heart becomes a hard heart. A heart that is resistant to change. It's resistant to the word of God. And as time passes, it's increasingly difficult to warm up a hard heart. And that's what we have here. We have a heart disease in this church. And it's the heart disease called love deficiency. And it was weakening the church to the point where the great physician says, I'll put you out of your misery by just closing the doors before you just weaken to nothing. So, what do we do when we have love deficiency, when we're suffering from a heart disease? And let me tell you, my dear friends, we're going to look at this this afternoon. 
This is the natural course of life. For your love and the fire and passion for the Lord just grows dimmer and weaker as life goes on and you get caught up in preoccupied with life and all of its demands. And you put God on the back burner of your life and your heart gets colder. You're great at performance, but you're not good at love and love for God and love for others. So our Lord says this to shake him up before he gives the remedy. He says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. If they didn't act, our Lord says, if you don't act, this is not an idle fret. It demonstrates how strongly the Lord feels about this matter. Love deficiency. Forsaking that first love. He says, I will remove your candlestick. Now, there's different views about what that means. But it's very clear. It's a, it's a, a, a very powerful fret. I think he's talking about literally the extinction of this church. The light will go out. Lack of love is a life-threatening disease. And our Lord is very concerned about it. Now, he gives three remedies. Three remedies. And I can finish this before my time is done. You're such good audience to sit this long. Do you know most Americans won't sit this long? They won't. They, they revolt. They, show, they, you know, they wave their watch or they have to go to the bathroom or something. But you're a good audience. All right, what's the remedy? May I say this remedy is on both the personal uh, level and the corporate level. So it refers to both. And I would even say it applies to your marriage. It would apply to all love relationships. All right, the first thing our Lord says, threefold remedy, remember. That's an easy one, remember. First thing our Lord says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Notice our Lord says to this solid, orthodox, doctrinally sound church, you have fallen. You're backslidden. Now, they may not have agreed with that. They may have said, well, where did that come from? We're a pretty good church. We're the right kind of church. They are not now what they once were spiritually. Now, there's an irony here. Here is a church that when traveling teachers came by and said, we're apostles, we got the credentials. They tested them and said, no. You're agents of Satan. You're false. You're out of here. Kick them out. Here's a church that endured persecution. And they, they understood these things. But they were blind to their own love deficiency. Isn't that interesting? This is why this, this, this chapter is for churches like ours. We can look at our church and say, hey, we got sound doctrine. We've got a lot of works going on here. We're doing a lot of things. We're exhausted, in fact. We're standing up for the Lord. But not see and be blind to the fact that the fire is going out. The real passion, the real motivation, the more excellent way, it's not there. Or it's waning. It's, it's, it's dying. Instead of increasing, it's decreasing. So the Lord says, remember where you have fallen. Now, we have to talk about this word remember because this could be misunderstood. To remember means to, re- to recollect past feelings and actions, but not in a passive sense. Like, remember the good old days? Oh, the good old days. Remember when we started at 9 o'clock? Those were the good old days. Yes. Remember when Paul was here 
And we'd have church picnics and we'd sit around the table with Paul. Oh, those were the good old days. Remember Timothy? We just loved Timothy. And Priscilla and Aquila, we went to their home many times and wonderful meals at Priscilla and Aquila's house. And Remember when Peter came by here? Boy, he was really quite a speaker. Yes, the good old days. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking here about a spiritual exercise that actually is ongoing because he uses the present imperative command. Remember, an ongoing, continuous mental attitude of remembering. It requires making an effort to spiritually recall past joys, past deeds, past attitudes, past experiences in the church in order, in order to repeat them and to act upon them. That's the difference between pastors remembering the good old days. You don't do anything with that. That there becomes a great danger as you get older. It's a natural process. They say up to 40, you make memories. After 40, you really think on them. Now, there's nothing wrong with thinking about old, great memories. If you have great memories, that's a wonderful thing. Some people don't have any. It's a good thing to think about them and enjoy them and go over them. But it can become a trap. You don't go forward. You just stay in the past. And that hurts churches. Churches that live in the past have no future. This is not that. This is spiritual exercise. These memories will guide the church in present action and provide future direction. That's what it will do. It will set the standard and will motivate change. Remembering these things will help the church see and admit its lapse of love. It had fallen. Remembering will lead to repenting and turning to the first acts of love. In other words, the way forward is going back. Clearly identifying what has been lost and acknowledge the falling condition of the church. So let's just apply this personally. It's really good advice. You've been saved 30 years. And going to church is an effort. You don't spend much time in prayer because it really is quite boring. And once in a while you do open the Bible. And uh, you don't ever sing the Lord's praise at home. That's something you do at church. You listen to country, western most of the week. And uh, you do spend quite a few hours at sports. Of course, sports are very interesting. And there are some very good TV programs, especially Animal Planet and the History Channel. And it's not long before you are so preoccupied with the things around you and the world and a little personal self-interest, you have not opened the Bible in a long time. And really, the fire is gone. You go to church. You're, nice, you're a nice person. But that's your problem. You're just nice. You don't love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You don't love Christ above all other things. Well, how in the world are you going to restore that love? Because that's what you have to do. You fall it. You're backslidden. You need to remember from where you have come. Well, first of all, start with remembering. And you will do this in prayer. You'll do this in consultation with other believers. And you will remember the days when you loved to come and hear the Bible preach. And you sat there and your pen burned up because you're taking so many notes. And you listen to CDs. Of course, in the old days, you listened to tapes. You were a tapeaholic. Loved to hear messages, Bible teaching. And when the singing came, you just right in the front row, you're singing your head off. Your voice is not left to you. And you get home, you sing the Lord's praise throughout the whole day. Love to pray Christian songs. And when prayer time came, you showed up at the prayer meeting because you, you thought it was so important. And when you heard of someone sick in the church, you wrote it right down. You called right away. You love to be with the brothers and sisters and spend time with them, even those who are not easy to spend time with. Those were the good old days. 
Now remember those days. Now you need to redo those things. You've got to remember what they were. And now we're going to see you have to repent, but you have to do them again. So that's what spiritual remembrance is. It's a spiritual exercise in which, in a prayerful attitude, you remember from where you've fallen. And you're going to do them again. So let's look at the second uh, state of remedy. Now just remember that. We've got to put them all three together. You have to repent. Another imperative command. Remember is followed by another imperative command, repent. There must a sense of return, of restoration, of one something you possess but no longer possess. Now, again, D.A. Carson gives a wonderful definition of repentance. I'll give you the definition, and then I'm going to apply it to the church in, in, in uh, Ephesus. What is meant by repentance is not merely intellectual change of mind or mere grief, still less doing penance, but a radical transformation of the entire person, a fundamental turnaround involving mind and action, including overtones of grief, which results in the fruit in keeping with repentance. Of course, all this assumes that man's actions are fundamentally off course and need radical change. Now, let's apply that definition, which I know you'll not remember 30 seconds after I gave it to you. But let's apply it to the church at Ephesus. Through repentance, the church of Ephesus would do the the following, would demonstrate the following. Number one, that it accepts Christ's evaluation of its fallen condition. Don't you think there were people in the church when they heard this read to them, and it's a letter from Christ, and the Spirit calls them to hear, some would say, I don't think that's true. I think we're a good church. I think it's an exaggeration. might be true of some, but not me. No, repentance means you accept Christ's evaluation. They're in a fallen condition. He says you've fallen. You were once here, and now you're here. So repentance has to start with uh, self-judgment, with saying, all right, the Lord is right, and I'm wrong. Second, it has judged itself according to Christ's words to be sinful and deserving of divine discipline. And so the repentant heart, listen carefully, judges itself according to what God says. You accept God's assessment and you judge yourself that you are worthy of divine discipline and his word is right. Third, it grieves over the loss of love and displeasure to Christ. And we know that from 2 Corinthians 7, 8, and 10, where uh, godly, godly repentance does lead to a grief, but it leads to an action. Next, it is a turning away from sin and a returning to the past life of love. So there is a turning. They were going this way. Actually, they were going downhill. He says, you fall. They're going downhill. They need to turn around and go back uphill. Lastly, it will, by God's grace and God's power and help, take appropriate action. And we'll see that in the next point. In other words, the Ephesians could not restore the first love without repentance. The Lord will not allow it. Sin must be judged. Sin cannot be ignored. It must be dealt with. Now, here is a great thought. This is a corporate call to repentance. Now, we normally think of repentance as a personal thing. I've sinned, and I repent. But he's not talking just individually. He's talking corporately. The whole church has to repent. Have you ever heard of a church repenting? Have you ever heard that? 
I've only seen it a few times. A whole church acknowledging its failure in evangelism. A whole church of uh, uh, a repenting and public acknowledging its lack of love and a call to repentance and prayer and confession. It should not be something that never happens in our history. It should be something that happens in the history of every church. A public call to repentance as a church. We've done it with our church. We remember where we've fallen, that we're not in the state that pleases Christ. His evaluation of us is absolutely true. We need to turn around and start heading in another direction. And we should have grief over what we've done. The way forward is backwards. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That's how the Lord's serious about this. I think many churches have been in bondage and have been in change for decades because it will not deal with its sin. It will not repent. I know of churches personally I've dealt with where there's been uh, the worst evil sexual sins, incest in the church by leaders. And it was all covered. No one says a word. What can, what can they expect from God but his judgment? They will not have God's blessing. It is, will not possibly be. They must, as a church, repent of this sin and all own it as their own and take it upon themselves in prayer, fasting, or that church cannot move to the next step. I believe many churches are in a bondage of sin that has not been confessed publicly and the leaders have been hiding and they've been protecting their little own egos instead of coming clean and saying, we have sinned. But there is grace and there's mercy and there's forgiveness. But we must repent. Here's this good church. It must repent. So don't look around and say, we don't need to repent. How do you know? Maybe you do. Well, you haven't been evaluating things according to Christ. Now, the last thing here is do the work you did at first. And we'll put this all together. After remembering spiritual exercise, repent. The third imperative command is do the works you did at first. Literally, the text reads, and do the works, do, and do the first works. Notice the word first reminds us of Revelation 2.4. You've abandoned love you had at first. In other words, genuine repentance produces fruit in keeping with repentance. Jesus points them back to the first works that sprang from the first love. And when they lost their first love, they lost certain words, works. Now, the Lord is not saying, get this, he's not saying do more works. They already have works. He, he acknowledged that. They're toiling in works, but there are certain works that have been abandoned. When, when they lost that first love, they gave it up. They abandoned it. With it came certain uh, actions and deeds. Gradual abandonment of first love, they also abandoned or greatly minimized certain acts of love and kindness and compassion and care and hospitality and prayer. Loss of love always has adverse consequences. It has consequences on a church's work, its conduct, its attitude, its activities. There are missing elements in this church. Now, this is very practical. Remembering can be rather abstract. Repentance, well, we know what that means. But what do we do after we repent? What do we do? Now he tells you what to do. So you don't just stop there. Do what you did at first. Okay, so 
singing the Lord's praises, going to church one hour a week is about all you can take. Hope they don't go over time. Hope they sing the songs I like. Hope the preacher isn't too boring. Hope I see my friends. Hope they have good coffee and donuts there. That's about it. That's it. That's church. It's about all you can squeeze out. How do you get back the fire? The flame of love. How do you do it? Well, let's go back to the time before you've fallen and slowly slid away from the Lord and the Lord's thing. Let's go back and remember the good old days. Remember when you really did love the word of God and when you did love to just sing and sing all day, you have the Lord's tune in your heart and you really had a real heart for hospitality and you loved to visit the sick and you were very, very concerned about your brothers and sisters going through deep struggles. All right, now start doing those things again. It might be a little mechanical at first. That's okay. Don't worry about it. So I say this to you. Take your Bible. Leave it open on your desk. Five minutes a day. That's all. Start with five. You haven't opened the Bible in a year. Sometimes you do open it because you remember a nice thought that you memorized when you were a child. And you were trying to find that. Or there was a lot of dust on your Bible. And you, you well, I better get that dust off. Oh, the book of Daniel. That's a neat book. I don't know what it means, but a really good book. All right. Five minutes a day. Start there. You've got to start someplace to go back. Start with five minutes a day. Pick something like maybe uh, the Gospel of John. Very simple. Maybe you need to read the book of Hebrews. Uh, they had become dull of hearing. There's a whole church there in this problem. Dull of hearing. Some were not going to church anymore. They were not gathering with the Lord's saints. Some were theologically and in practice going backwards. So maybe you need to start with Hebrews. Get the warnings, real serious warnings there. All right, five minutes a day. And then right after that, you just have a few minutes, have a little card. And on that card, you have a couple prayer requests, okay? And then I want to suggest this. When you go to work in the morning... Play a CD with the Lord's, Lord's uh, songs, uh, Christian songs. Maybe start that in the morning, first thing. There's something about when you start the morning with singing the Lord's praises that it lifts up your spirit and that will stay in your brain all day. It's an amazing thing. And you'll sing it all day. And it'll move your heart. And then when you go to church, instead of looking for the donuts and the coffee, you can say, is there a little thing, a little job I could do here? Just something very small. I, only, I have a little time. I don't have much time because uh, there's such good shows on at home and I don't want to miss them. Start doing what you used to do. You've got to start someplace. You've repented. You've seen what you used to be like. And you say, Lord, I want that back again. Same thing is true in marriage. Fire starts waning. You get cold in the marriage. You know, you can barely talk to each other. You get home from work. You sit behind the newspaper about the most you say to your wife, honey, pass the pretzels, you know. Uh, how do you get the flame back in the marriage? Well, first, remember. Remember the good old days? Remember when you're just talking to each other on the phone and you could talk, 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 talk? Remember when just even touching pinkies? Oh, it felt so good. And you used to open the door for her and you used to uh, think of things you could buy for her and uh, all these little things you thought about, even a card. All right, start doing those things again. Call your wife up in the middle of the day. Uh, thank her at dinner and just say, dear, every meal, you such wonderful meals. You know, there's a man I know. I know him very, 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 very well. Been to his home many times. I have never heard him once compliment his wife or say thank you at the meal. I don't leave a meal without thanking my wife profusely. 
And you know, she's never complained. She never said, oh, stop it. She says, yeah, it was good meal. Yeah, and it was a lot of work. Every meal, my children have seen that. Oh, dear, thank you for so much work and effort. I could never do this. I just go out and eat. I go to hotels and eat every meal. It's like when my wife leaves town, the children were young, and she said, all this stuff in the fridge, and all this meal, that, that meal, this. I look in there, it's absolute confusion. And so after she left, I said, kids, we're going to McDonald's. We're going the easy route, you know. <laughs> and we'll let mom, then she'd come home and see all that food in there. I said, honey, it was too confusing. You didn't give good enough instructions. She goes, oh, you're, you're hopeless. You're just hopeless. No, you thank her for all the work. And then a little, oh, women, men, I have to, ladies, you don't, aren't to li- li- listen right now. Just, just uh, abandon the, this sermon for a moment. Men, women love cards. If you send even a little note, and I know it's hard for men to write notes. You know, Campus Crusade for Christ does this uh, uh, couples retreat. Uh, I'm sure some of you have gone to it. A yearly retreat. We have it in our city. We always send couples to it. And at the end of the weekend, uh, my wife and I went to, and it's very, very good, a nice renewal of your marriage. And uh, at the end of the week, they give you a survey. You fill out the survey of the weekend, how to improve it. And the women will write all over it, and they'll write on the side, and they'll write on the back. The men will put, good conference. <laughs> That's about what you get, good conference. Or, great. That's about it. If you get, get more than five words, you know the guy's got a problem. If you write a note to your wife, first of all, I must warn you, if they're older, they could have a heart attack. So do it carefully. You write a little note. Or you hold her hand when you're walking instead of walking 12 steps in front of her. You know, come on, bring up the rear there. And open the car door. I mean, she could have a heart attack. Be careful. You might want to have an emergency 911 number nearby. Or if you sit right next to her or compliment her. What did you do in the old days? Do it again. Start again. So our Lord's giving very, very practical advice. Here's how to light the fire again. Here's how to restore love that has fallen. Here's how to get back on track again. Go back. What were those days like? What did you do? And you're not doing now. Start doing it again. So I want to encourage you in your own personal life. Play Christian music. I find that moves the emotion. You say, I I don't like praying. Well, here's a good thing. Take your hymn book out and sing a hymn before you pray. It will move your heart to pray. Or if you have a completely lousy voice, uh, play a CD. And as you listen to that, it will move you to prayer. Make your prayer short. Make them pointed. Write things down. Start small and then increase moment by moment. Then a good thing to do is call someone to help you and call your accountant. Just say, you know, I really don't have a great desire for the Bible anymore. I don't have much desire for the Lord's things. I mean, outwardly you wouldn't know that, but inwardly there's, there's no real emotions there or, or, or heart of love. And I don't love God with all my heart, soul, and mind. I love him externally, but there, there's really not much there of my whole mind, my whole soul, my whole strength. Will you hold me accountable to start practicing what I used to practice? That would be a good thing. To have someone help you or sit down and counsel with someone about being basically backslidden. It's an old-fashioned word, but it's a great word. And no one can see it. You're, maybe your spouse can't even see it. Maybe you, you have a little ritual. You open your Bible, you make a prayer. Uh, now I lay me down to sleep and you're done, like a lucky rabbit's foot. It reminds me of going to the hospital one time, and this guy's laying in the hospital with his head all cocked up like the side. I said, what's wrong? He had the Bible under his head. He was hoping it was going to heal him. I said, you're going to wind up with a sick neck. Get the Bible out of there. It's not a mad, lucky ma- magic foot. 
you know, you go through those motions of reading the Bible and praying. You know you've been doing that all your life. But there's nothing there. You're not getting anything out of it. Just like a parrot or a monkey, you could just go through the same thing over and over. Call someone to pray for you. Say, I want to remember what that that passion of love for the Lord, that passion of love for one another, a passionate love for world missions. I, I want to get that back again. I will repent before the Lord. Sit with me and pray with me about this and help me to call me accountable to do the works I used to do. Now, that's individually. That can be in a marriage. But in this text, it has to be in a church. So that might mean a, a time where the church gets together and has prayer it might mean that the leaders of the church address uh, faults or sins or lapses that uh, you have identified. And you say to the church, you give some teaching on it. You know, we have, we have had no vision for the lost. We've had no vision for world missions. We have not been great commission Christians. We need, to, we need to go back to that. And we need to start taking steps. We'd like to hear from you. Maybe you have some advice. We want you to pray about this. And we're going to have a prayer meeting. We're all going to pray as a church about this matter. And we're going to publicly uh, repent and confess this before the Lord. But that's not good enough. You must do the works you did at first. And then we're going to get started. Here's what we're going to do. We'll start small. So do not be embarrassed if your church gets spoken about that it repented. Well, what they need to repent about? Oh, a lot of things. Boy, our church is so good, we don't need to repent. Well, there's one thing you need to repent of, your pride. But we're proud of it. We're so proud about ourselves, we can hardly stand it. And that's why you fight so much and have so much of this interpersonal conflict and ill feelings toward one another and lack, lack of forgiveness and uh, power struggles. It all comes back to lack of love. Now, not if you know I, I teach this doctrine of biblical eldership, but eldership will not work without love. I guarantee you. You put a bunch of strong men together, they'll kill each other. I guarantee you. They've all got their little personal agendas, you know. They're all uh, suffering from egomania, and you put them together, they can't work together. It's not possible unless they have the new commandment. The only way to work together is the new commandment. And humbling one another constantly and submitting one to another and learning what it really is to work as a team and not just the private independent agent who does what he wants, can't even, doesn't even know how to work with a team of people. How do you expect the church to function that way? And so we build churches where one person has absolute authority and power. It's the only way we can get along. That's actually a failure. It does work. It does work. But it's a failure that the, the people of God can't get along unless someone tells them what to do. And if you don't agree with that person, go to another church. You can't have eldership without love. And you can't have a really loving, caring, praying community without love. You cannot. You can have a big church where everyone comes in. They don't know each other. You fill the pews. You got a lot of money coming in. The Lord says, but I have this against you. It looks good. Everyone says, whoa, that's a big church. It's booming. All the moths are flown around the light bulbs. In our city, I've watched this over 40-some years. Church starts near our church, starts with about 50 people. Next week, 100 people. Next week, 300 people. Next week, 1,000 people. In months, they're under the thousands. This just happened recently in our community, another church. Started with 50 people, 100 people, 500 people. Now, 6,000, 7,000 people. I call it the, laws, the, the malls around the light bulb. 
We gave a donation to this church. Every church has to give a donation. We gave five couples. It wasn't too much of a donation, but we gave our donation to them. Do you think that pleases the Lord? Just look, looking around. Oh, that's the newest. That's the truest. We're going there. Forsake the brotherhood. Forsake the, the family of God. Lose all your history. Nothing more beautiful than having history with one another, fighting through the battles, the problems, the difficulties. Church life is not easy life. It can be very difficult. It can kill you. But that's where the Lord sanctifies us. That's where he grows us. That's where we learn about forgiveness and humility and gentleness and patience and all these beautiful fruits of the Spirit. Instead of running off all the time, looking for what's going to help me and please me. So it all comes back to this principle that Christ gave. I have this against you. You've abandoned, you've forsaken the love you once had. So I want you to remember from where you have fallen and backslidden. And I want you to turn right around and head back up the mountain again. And I want you to repent and I want you to do what you used to do. Those things you've abandoned, those things that are just mechanical and rote now with no joy. I want you to start doing those and pray for my spirit to help you. Now, there's good news as we close here. I can't believe I've spoken this long. This is like a miracle. This is a miracle, an American miracle. We need to get this in a book, and we'll be best-selling, and I want 10% of the profits. Now, to the church, uh, this is, I'm joking, so please, please, um, uh, I'll take 5%. To the, church, to the church at Ephesus, there's good news. Repentance secures the Lord's forgiveness and help. Christ will supply the oil of fresh love for the lamp that will shine brighter again. He wants nothing more than their love to be revived and grow stronger. He wants them to have that first love. For the Ephesians, the fire of love can be rekindled. Lives can be rededicated to Christ. The Holy Spirit can breathe new life into prayer, Bible study, evangelism, worship, fellowship with one another. We can more fully know and abide in the love of Christ, which the Lord calls us to do. Well, what in the world happened to this church? This is a serious warning. Well, we know from the seven letters of Ignatius, who is the overseer of the church of Antioch, In the seven letters, he sends one letter around somewhere around 115 A.D., somewhere around there, within a five-year gap on either side. He sends a letter to the church in Ephesus. And so we know by 115 A.D., the church was alive and well, and Ignatius says the church is known for its love. And he names names of people, of irreprovable, blameless love. So they must have repented. And they must have gone back and did what they did at first. And the Lord did not have to remove their lampstand. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, uh, these are your words delivered by the Holy Spirit. They're the words of your Son, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the churches. And he gives us here a penetrating insight into a really good church, 
a church much like our own churches. But there is this deficiency of love. We pray that we can understand this passage of Scripture. We can see it and understand it in our own personal lives, in our corporate lives. And we will not forget these words, but keep them before us at all times. Help us to be a repenting people. A concerned and serious-minded people. Concerned with your words. May we not fear men. May we not fear circumstances. But may we fear you. And do your will. To all these ends, for your glory, we ask these things. Amen.